So the question is, where do we get the space for renewables, be it offshore or be it onshore? But also, how can we accelerate planning and permitting processes, which are currently much too long, especially here in Europe? And in some countries, like here in Germany, the question of how do we ensure green security of supply is now also discussed. And then the last topic is sector coupling. Uh, what need, do we need to do to incentivize the use of green electricity and hydrogen also in the industry, heating sector, transportation? So we get down to the real question and, and nobody can avoid the real question of implementation by just discussing new targets. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. This episode is one of the series featuring energy transition leaders who will be speaking at our Spring Forum. The forum takes place in London on Wednesday the 29th of September. For more information, go to auroraer.com slash events. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Featherson, founder and chief executive of Aurora. And today we'll be focusing on the role of the world's largest utilities in decarbonizing society. To discuss this topic, my guest today is the CEO of one of Europe's largest utilities and one of the world's largest renewables businesses. He's played an absolutely central role in the energy transition in Europe over the past decade. Uh, for example, uh, heavily involved in the German nuclear phase-out and coal exits as a market participant, and also engaged in market reform debates around capacity mechanisms, renewable support schemes, emissions trading scheme reform. If it was a big item in European electricity markets, my guest was involved in it. My guest on the show today is Markus Kreber, CEO of RWE. Welcome, Markus. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure being here. Marcus, I'd like to start by reflecting on your journey before we, we get into RWE and the industry. Now, you didn't start your career in power. You were a McKinsey consultant, and then you went into banking before coming into the utility sector. Uh, why did you make that move from banking into the utility sector? What attracted you? Uh, and do you think there are any lessons that we could take from finance into our, our sector? I think that has been quite a while ago, John. I think now more than more than nine years when I left the finance sector. I think back in that time, I was uh, I was looking for a new challenge. And I, I mean, by now I learned to love the commodity markets and the energy and utility business. I mean, compared to banking, it's uh, it's real business, right? You, I mean, you build power plants, be it renewable or conventional, you produce electricity um, and you move things around and you supply the industry with this electricity, gas and, and other fuels. Um, I mean, today it already feels like I've never done something else. Um, but your question regarding learnings, I'm not sure whether there are direct ones. I think every industry is um, is kind of special. But um, what I can point out in, in terms of learnings from my experience in both industries, there are parallels. I mean, in the, in the financial service industry, I have gone through the financial crisis. And here in the energy industry, as you pointed out in the in the nice introduction, I went through um, the the first steps of the energy transition. And I mean, what my learning is, when when your business is disrupted, 
and you discuss strategy. I mean, you shouldn't start with what you have and where you come from. You should really start from scratch, Greenfield. And um, that sometimes scares people, but you should also not underestimate how much you can change within 10 years. So also a company which probably has not the best starting position can be turned around. It's interesting, maybe if we have time at the end, you know, the rise of fintechs in the finance industry is very interesting and the extent to which they will be a sustainable feature of that market or whether that's a sort of short, short term role is something we might we might pick up. The other question I had about your journey so far is it looks to me at least like you've got, in addition to your very demanding role at RWE, one of Europe's largest utilities, you've also got a very demanding family life uh, with a big family. How do you how do you balance those responsibilities of a you know a big atomic uh, nuclear family, uh, and also you know do you see ways in which that influences your leadership style? How you think about how people balance those things at RWE and beyond? Yeah, of course, it's sometimes challenging to managing uh, your diary, but uh, for me, the family is a the source of of strength, and I mean, it always helps you to set the right priorities, and that also makes some challenges in business life sometimes a bit, uh, let's say, easier to digest. Uh, what I do is I, I prioritize my diary with setting the family time first, and then my professional life needs to fit into the rest, um, and of course with some sleep and sports and time for friends. Um, but I think it's not a unique situation for us. I mean, everybody has in, in some kind of balancing uh, private and, and, and professional life. Some leaders in the energy sector, I think Ben Van Burden from Shell, for example, I remember him speaking about how he links you know, the need to address climate change to the close relationship he has with young people through his children and the next generation. Do you do you find yourself drawing that that link? Do you do you do you see the energy transition as something that has a huge impact on the welfare of your children? Yes, of course. And um, and there's also a very vivid discussion at the family table. And um, I mean, with with five kids all in school age, and of course, being um, influenced by their friends and, of course, also teachers. Um, when, when we discuss uh, topics like the energy transition, you, you already have every different angle at the table at home. Some people care more about um, the environment, some more about uh, the affected workers, and some being, I mean, more or less um, a bit selfish, thinking about what it means uh, for us. So I think it's um, it's it's maybe parallel to the entire society, and um, that's a very very healthy discussion you have at home. Um, and of course, that also helps you to kind of um, set the priorities of what you want to achieve as a company. Now, can I can I change focus to RWE itself? Now, you know, it seems like a huge amount of activity. Very exciting time to be at RWE in general. One of the things I've noticed is you've committed. Uh, to be carbon neutral by 2040 as a company. Now, you know, I think there there are there are different views on these sorts of long term commitments. You know, you, you may or may not be in the role of CEO in 2040. Who who knows? But but it's sort of it's a long way into the future. A lot of people will be doing different things. Um, and so there's a there's a natural challenge of okay, you know, how how meaningful are these commitments? But can you say a bit about from the inside of the organisation? You know, why you make a commitment like that and, and how that has an impact on the way RWE functions and the way it makes decisions? 
So first of all, I have the pleasure of still being not young, but uh, middle aged. So at 24, no, I'm age of 67. So I am hopefully still around and also active, maybe not in this role, but probably in the industry. Um, I mean, coming to your question, we had a very intensive discussion within the RWE management team about this um, long-term target. Um, it was two, three years ago. Um, but what we learned is with the pledge to become carbon neutral by 2040, which is, I mean, by the way, uh, faster than the European um, target and also faster than the German target, um, we, we, had, um, we had clarity in the group because we started discussing things we would have not discussed without these clear ambitions. Like, I mean, how do we going to decarbonize our gas fleet? Do we still enter into long-term gas supply contracts with durations close to or even beyond 2040, things like that? I think the cornerstones are set. We have our huge investment program in renewable energy. Um, and by that, we are able to replace coal and nuclear generation. Um, I think what you ensure with these very bold long-term targets is that the resources, the know-how, but also investment capital across the entire group is employed in a way which is in line with this long-term pledge. And that, that gives you an additional momentum within the group because you cannot decide every single decision, but when people know where you want to go, they take the right decisions themselves. Mm. It sounds almost a parallel. I, I have a session when new people join Aurora where I talk about our company values and we have three of them. And it's a sort of, you know, you can't be, you obviously can't be prescriptive about, you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people and what they do every day. But if you give this sort of guidance, then that, that you know, enhances decision making and those types of things. It's, it's an interesting take on the value of those long-term long -term commitments. Um, was there, like, was there a give, was there a specific moment where you said, okay, RW or RW is a company said, we're going to focus on being a global leader in renewables. You, you know, where you, because that, ha that wasn't always the history, you know, there's the, the, you know, the rural area in Germany and, and, and coal mining and, and power generation in Europe's industrial heartland. Was there a trigger moment where you said, right, things will change and we will be a, global renewable company? Yeah, I think, I mean, we have to go a bit back into history, into the very colorful history of the of the German utilities. And um, we have to start in 2016. Um, I mean, in 16, RWE was in, in, in trouble. Power prices were at record lows. Um, the financial profile of the company was pretty weak. And then the German government wanted to set up this nuclear waste fund. So we had to fund billions into this fund, but we, we didn't have them. On the, on the bank. So the solution back in 2016 was the IPO of Energy, where we bundled our networks, retail and renewables business. And that allowed us to tap the capital market for a capital increase on the energy level and not at the RWE level. At the RWE level, we would have diluted our existing shareholders significantly, close to 50%. Um, but then the day after the IPO of Energy, and Energy, as you know, was independent, we found ourselves at RWE in a position running just conventional generation and commodity trading. And it was not a surprise, but the, the outcome of our in-depth strategy exercise was that this business as it stands, our operating business besides the financial holding and energy would not survive. And then the question was, I mean, what are we gonna do with the company? 
And at the core of the company was always power generation. I mean, when RWE was founded 1898, 1898, yes, um, the core was power generation and trading. And then we looked into the future and it was totally obvious already back then, uh, 16, 17, that power generation will be based on renewable energy. So we need to get into this business and to make that the new core, the new heart of RWE. And then we explored all the different options and in the transaction with Aeon, so swapping our stake in energies, networks and retail business for energies and aeons renewables business we found the best solution and that was the trigger point i mean where the decision was taken earlier maybe in 1617 but then the transaction was announced um, in 18 um, and that was maybe they, these are the two trigger points the greenfield strategy exercise and then uh, getting to what we wanted to achieve via the transaction with aeon in 18. Mm. And, and was there ever a point where you doubted it could could happen? As you say, it's sort of 1898 power, power generation and, and trading. You know, as you, as you say, you're, you're still a power generation company. It's just it's, it's renewables. Was it a case of, okay, we do the energy, we get the energy and Eon renewables assets. That's great. And now we're a global player. Uh, and so there was never any doubt. It just that was the transaction that did it. Or, or, the, or were there periods where you said, you know, hang on, we're fundamentally changing the culture and purpose of the business. And this might be too, this might be too tough to, to deliver. Were there moments like that? No, I mean, there were challenges, but I never had doubt that we're going to get where we wanted to get to. Um, because, I mean, you, you felt it from the first minute. People, uh, whether it's on, on the commercial side in trading or conventional power generation or renewable power generation or the customer business, they all talk about the same topic, how to supply our customers, the industry with the, the power, with the energy they need. Um, and in future, that's going to be green. In, in the history, it's going to be uh, conventional. Um, of course, it was a very long and, and complex transaction. But I mean, from the first minute, it was clear that um, everybody wanted to achieve that. Um, and in the end, it, it all went pretty well. Mm. Do, do you think it's harder for oil and gas companies to make that transition than for utility companies? You know, the, the molecule to electron movement, you know, is, is, a, is a more difficult one? Um, I mean, I'm not an expert in oil and gas across the entire value chain. So um, it's, it's maybe not, not me the right person judging that. But mm. I see two differences. I mean... The one thing you need to understand about electricity, other than oil and gas, it there's very limited storability. Um, so it's it's not it is it is three dimensional. It's not only um, um, location, um, it's location and time, um, and that is maybe a difference here. Um, what is interesting about the two industries, I mean, we are more or less moving the same direction and, and there is a proximity. I mean, we are using our electrons in future, our full green electrons to move downstream via hydrogen and maybe future synthetic fuels. And the oil and gas um, majors, they go, let's say, upstream and they know that they need to replace their gas and oil wells um, by uh, green electricity, because that will be the basis of um, of energy in future. Um, where that ends, I don't know. I think, I mean, that is very dynamic, very interesting. That also why I like the industry so much, 
but what the potential outcome in a decade's time is i mean who knows yeah yeah it's a difficult one you you, you sort of i i find one fruitful angle to look at it is to ask yourself why were the super majors so big what was the nature of those markets that that gave them scale economies and maybe that says something about about where we're going um i'd like to get to hydrogen in a second on renewables can you just say a little bit about where you are now in terms of the growth of your re renewables business you know you've got a you've got a big offshore business you've got a big global footprint where, where are you how do you see the next five years panning out I mean, that's also maybe an interesting piece. I mean, you, you rightly say that we are one of the largest players, but still, when you look at the size, it's still tiny. I think there's a long way to go um, and the market will grow for, for decades to come. But I mean, coming to your question, I'm very pleased with the development um, the company is going. I mean, we are currently growing our renewables business faster than ever. Uh, we have employed two billion um, gross investments for the, in the first six months of this um, year. Currently, we have four gigawatt um, of capacity under construction. And also, I think that is even more important in renewables is building your pipeline and ensuring that you have projects to be invested in, to be delivered in a couple of years' time. And we have been successful in the, in the UK offshore round four uh, auction. Um, we are, we are, we have closed our strategic gap in onshore in Europe by acquiring a development pipeline in France um, and also shifting the company a bit more from the very uh, significant wind focus also to solar. We have significantly ramped up our solar pipeline over the last two years. So I'm, I'm actually um, um, very happy about the development here. Mm -hmm. and, and can you say, where do you see the economies of scale then? in you know in being a renewables generator uh so so you've gone you've gone global um which parts of the you've talked about the development pipeline and you've talked about doing both solar and wind and not necessarily specializing what aspects of that business model do you see as the ones that that scale the best internationally and enable you to outcompete smaller local players i think one of the one of the most crucial question in the next let's say decade to come is really um, where do you focus on? Because I see two totally different angles of the business. One is scale. You definitely need scale in offshore, scale in onshore wind and also in solar in order to be competitive, to get the LCOEs down, to have very healthy relationship to the suppliers with a constant flow of orders. That's very important. But then there is the other angle in the end. The energy market is a national, is a local market also because transportation and storage of electricity is limited. And so far, we have probably not seen in many countries the limitations of higher penetration rates of wind and solar. But when, we, when you see them like we see them in Germany, you start asking yourself the question, how will the entire energy system, electricity system look like being green, not only producing significant parts from wind and solar, but also how do you ensure, let's say, let's call it green security of supply. And then immediately the market angle kicks in. I mean, how is the market structure? How is regulation? How are remuneration frameworks? What are the needs of the customers? And there you need to have an integrated view across the value chain and not only certain technology like global solar. And combining that and defining the right footprint for the company will be crucial. I mean, for the time being, we have decided we, we want to strengthen our global position in offshore. Of course, core markets are here in Europe. 
In the other markets, like the Asian markets and also North America, we're going to go with partners, uh, not our own. But for onshore wind and solar, uh, we are strong enough um, in our core markets, North America and all European markets to do it more or less on our own. And, and what do you, what are the character, is, is it possible to say what are the characteristics of a good partner as you, as you see it in these markets or does it vary substantially? No, I think, I mean, we, we don't talk about financial partners. Um, I mean, there is no lack of capital and lack of ambition. Everybody wants to go big and everybody has, uh, if he has the capabilities to deliver, has the money being available um, in this very low interest rate environment. Um, so when we, when we talk about partners, we think about partners who add what we lack in the certain market. So in the end, we talk about local players. I mean, look at our partners in, um, in, in, in Japan or in Taiwan. Uh, they typically bring what we don't understand and they can organize offtake. They understand the regulation. Um, they are much better in local stakeholder management. And here in these markets, we clearly bring the global technology advantage. Is there a particular market you're really excited about, Marcus? You know, is there a particular region of the world where you say RWE has the skills you know, the, the policy get, gets it and understands what it needs to do um, and we can make a big impact over, over over the medium term at the moment? I mean, if you would have asked me the same question uh, 18 months ago, John, the question, the answer would have been different. But today, I, I tell you, it's probably Germany. It's our home market for a simple reason. Because when you look at the necessary investments which are needed to take the energy transition to a full success. The, the investment amount which is needed is highest in Germany because we have the challenge not only to build up further wind and solar capacity, we also need to replace coal and gas. Um, and we need to ensure security of supply and we probably have a huge demand for hydrogen because we are so industrialized. Um, and if you compare that, for example, to the UK, they don't have the problem of replacing coal. Coal is history in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. And also the, the demand we expect for hydrogen is, is comparably lower than here in Germany. So um, the, the efforts which are needed to take a country to full decarbonization are significant higher here in Germany than in most other parts of, of, um, of Europe and the world. Yeah, and of course the British don't need to. They've got to replace some of the nuclear, but 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 not all of it as well, I suppose. It's a good segue to hydrogen, um, and I find that fascinating that you think that the need for hydrogen is high is substantially higher in Germany than in GB. Where do you see that? And you've you've got a new hydrogen business unit. You're focusing very, obviously very seriously on it, and and I can understand. I think anyone who knows understands the energy sector can understand why. Where do you see the opportunities for your hydrogen business? I think you already had the the um, the pleasure of talking to Sopna as well, our our um, head of hydrogen, John. So you yeah, a very high understanding. So I give you the high level for the company. Podcast. Um, I mean, hydrogen is a hot topic these days, and I think that's for a good reason, because it's the only known technology which can decarbonize those parts um, of, of the other sectors which cannot be electrified. Um, and for us, it's, very, it's a very good business because we understand it. We cover the entire value chain already today. So we, we supply green electricity, um, we can run electrolyzers, uh, we can store gas and hydrogen, and we provide customer solutions. So we are able to bridge 
the production profile, which sometimes differ from the from the load from the demand profile. We do that in electricity. We can also do that in hydrogen. Um, and for us, I mean, when you when you talk about the opportunities, it's twofolded. Um, one is another route to market for our green electricity, and on the other hand, it strengthens our relationship to our industrial customers because i mean currently we supply them with power and gas and in future we supply them with green energy products i mean primarily uh, electricity and hydrogen just a, a slightly detailed question then I, and you may not have a view on this but when i think about net zero i think there's this general view that decarbonizing power is cheap and that's true for most hours of the year, but there are some very difficult hours to decarbonize, which is why some people think about hydrogen in the in the power sector. If you cast your mind forward you know, to 2040, 2050, as the power system is very low or, or negative emissions, what do you think will be keeping the lights on in that sort of peak hour of the year? Wind, the wind's not blowing, it's it's February in in, in Europe. What's the What's that kind of final final megawatt hour of power coming from? And do you give hydrogen a good chance of, of providing that, or do you think it'll be something else? It can be hydrogen, John. It can also be something else, but it's not the most relevant question for the electricity sector because um, you have other sectors like, I don't know, steel or, I mean, um, glass or um, cement. They also need to find solutions and um, whatever they can burn uh, or use in order to produce um, very high degrees of heat, we can burn somewhere to provide the last megawatt hour of electricity. I mean, I'm pretty sure that most likely that will be based on green electricity being the only source of, of truly decarbonized energy. Uh, but whether we burn um, hydrogen or ammonia or even sink fuel because i mean it's more efficient to produce sink fuel somewhere on in the in the world and, and carry it around the globe um, that um, remains to be seen what i can tell you is my i would guess that whatever you use will be imported into europe and not produced in europe so also long term europe will stay in, in a country, an area where you need to import energy. Today, we import fossil fuels. In future, we need to import green energy products. And just to elaborate a little bit on that, so you're 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 of the view. It's you've made you've made two you've you've made two things clear there. One is you think electricity will be the the source of decarbonized energy. So not it's not going to be coal with carbon capture. It's, it's going to be a smaller role or gas with carbon capture. Uh, and you've also said uh, Europe will be an importer. What Do you have a sense of where you think the energy will come from then? Is it about pipeline supply to Europe? Is it about shipping? Have you Is, is that sufficient clear in your, in your mind? No, I think it's decades to go, but I mean, there is a picture emerging. I mean, you you already can spot the, the areas around the globe where you can expect electricity to pro be produced at the lowest SEOEs. I mean, that is Australia, that is Chile, North America, but also the Middle East, North Africa, maybe even parts of Ukraine. And these are all the areas where, I mean, Europe is now establishing um, energy partnerships with. Um, of course, part partly it can come via pipelines, but depending on what exact product you ship, it can also come via ships. Um, I mean, it's probably comparable to the current gas infrastructure. 
um, where you have the pipes and pipes are cheaper than than ships you use pipes and otherwise you use lng mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and is there if the what what do you think we need to get right right now and I, and I think i'm talking about policymakers primarily if we want to unlock the potential for hydrogen in decarbonizing europe what do you think are the bits we need to get right at the moment to make it happen i think the most important thing um, we, we we need to get our head around is how do we synchronize the investment cycles what do I mean with that? I mean, even knowing that potentially we need to import the green energy because we, we don't have enough space to produce green electricity for the electricity sector and then for the hydrogen sector in Europe long term. Uh, we cannot ask the industry to wait for the imports because if we do that, we lose the next investment cycle in the European industry and they will they will relocate. So we have to build it up here in Europe and then maybe later in two decades, the products will be replaced by not being produced here, but but shipped from somewhere. Um, so what is important to build the infrastructure here um, or, or the business? I think it's twofold. One is we need clarity about the grid backbone because you need to understand uh, before you invest, let's say, in a, in a DRI steel mill or things like that, you need to have a clear understanding at which location can you expect hydrogen being supplied um, with which volumes um, and, and, and at what time. Um, and on the other hand, as a producer, you want to understand where do you have the, de the demand. Um, and then you need to bridge that. And the, the infrastructure is the most important one because that can be neither solved by suppliers nor off-takers. Um, and I think the Netherlands have done a very good example of kickstarting that, giving a clear um, guidance to um, to the grid operators that they want to um, have clarity about how the hydrogen network will look like in 2030, 2040, that there is um, certainty for, for producers and off-takers. And the other one is, the other element which is needed is pragmatism. Um, let's take the steel mill again. If one European steel mill wants to invest into DRI, so a production process run on hydrogen um, or gas. I think there is not enough hydrogen available today. So, but we need to allow them also investing today, but running it maybe the first years on natural gas and then maybe on blue hydrogen. And the moment we have enough green hydrogen being available, they can switch to green hydrogen. But the support needs to start now. Otherwise, we lose the investments here in Europe. Um, and it is, again, it's another of those areas where power was, a, for a number of decades, was a reasonably slow-moving sector, uh, and, and all of a sudden things need to move very, very quickly, and the whole mindset needs to change. I see parallels to electric vehicles and electric charging, and how do you get the midstream, how do you get the midstream to, um, to develop a system into which competition and, 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 and private investment can flourish? Can we talk a bit about can we talk about a bit about the energy sector more broadly? Um, and one of the biggest items of the last twelve months has been EU climate ambition. There's this fit for fifty five package which ratchet, we've ratcheted up our ambition in terms of decarbonisation by twenty thirty. That's had implications for the carbon price, obviously, which is trading at record highs. And Germany, as it always does, has gone further in terms of ambition. How are you as a company dealing with those changes in the last year? I, I have to tell you honestly that I'm actually in favor of the of the 
of the Titan targets because for a very simple reason, um, the targets are now so ambitious that the discussion about potentially even um, tighter targets or new targets is, is over. I mean, nobody talks about new targets anymore. And the big advantage of that is that now everybody can focus on what is really needed, and that is implementation. So the question, what do we need to have to do to achieve the targets? And we now get, and I see that in, in every country where we operate, that we get to the right questions. So everybody is now honest and, and expect electricity demand to increase significantly. So we not only need to replace the current conventional electricity generation by renewables, we need to top that up maybe twofolded. Um, so the question is, where do we get the space for renewables, be it offshore, be it onshore? But also, how can we accelerate planning and permitting processes, which are currently much too long, especially here in Europe? Um, and in some countries, like here in Germany, the question of how do we ensure green security of supply is now also discussed. Um, and then the last uh, topic is um, sector coupling. Uh, what need, do we need to do to incentivize the use of green electricity and hydrogen also in the industry, heating sector, transportation? Um, so we get down to the real question and, and nobody can avoid the real question of implementation by just discussing new targets. Do you think we can get there on, so onshore wind is a good example. As I think you intimate, the economics are great. There's plenty of investment for onshore if we can get the permitting and planning right. But at the same time, we've had a number of years now where, you know, the politics are difficult. Do, do you, are you an optimist about the future of onshore wind in, in Germany, in England, in, in these places that over the last few years have said, you know, not in my backyard? Can we change that debate? It depends on how we approach it. Um, if you, if you ask me as a, as a company, uh, what can you do to convince uh, local municipalities to accept an, an onshore wind park? I probably, then I'm probably pessimistic. Um, so I think a society driven by the politicians needs to have the courage to have the real debate. And the real debate for me is the following. If we want to keep our wealth and if we want to keep our industrial jobs here in Europe, we need to tell the people that we need significant investments in infrastructure. And I'm not only talking about the energy infrastructure, also the transportation infrastructure and the digital infrastructure. And investments, they need to happen somewhere. I mean, you need to, some somebody will see them and, and, and maybe hear them. Um, and that has also been the basis of our first big industrial success wave in Europe. And people accepted plants being built somewhere. And that is the real debate. If that is not accepted and we don't have a broad consensus on that, then we're going to fail. Thinking about the, the sort of broader social context, Marcos, I think you know, while the overall cost to society from switching to fossil fuels to renewables in many cases is small, in, in, in a number of cases is negative actually, when you look at very specific areas, uh, there are communities, for example, mining communities around lignite, lignite mines that have hugely negative consequences, or, or at least at first glance from the energy transition. How do you think, you've been managing this for the last probably decade or, or, or so, both in the nuclear and the coal context. How do you think government and energy companies can better manage this, this important social responsibility? 
I think, John, you are touching up on a very important um, aspect, and, and that is um, um, how do we also mitigate the negative effects of the energy transition and the question who is who is best positioned to do that? Um, and I think um, what I like about the German way of managing it, it's, I mean, the coal exit has been discussed here in a commission with representatives of, of um, from all stakeholders. I mean, industry, regions, the affected regions, the unions, uh, but also NGOs. So the compromise has found a very broad basis. And now the companies that together with the, with the government and the local um, municipalities are implementing that. Um, and that also brings me to the topic. I mean, sometimes um, our shareholders are asking us to simply um, sell our polluting assets. Um, and um, because that would, of course, uh, re-rate um, our stock um, and would also simplify our, our story and which would make us a much greener company. Um, but I would be careful here because um, of, you could maybe achieve the re-rating, but you also need to ask the question, I mean, what will it do for the environment, for the people and the regions? Um, and that leads to the question, who will actually buy it if you sell the polluting assets? And um, will the new buyer close faster than you would have done it? Um, or would he fight until the end to run the assets? And um, how will he treat the workers and regions? Um, and what kind of governance uh, will you have? I mean, probably it's not a listed company buying these polluting assets. And for me, the answer to all this is, is obvious. I mean, splitting companies and selling polluting assets um, probably does not help the environment, the workers. It's maybe even hindering transformation. So, I mean, I really urge the finance community to get the right definition of sustainability, which for me covers two aspects. One is um, it needs to be holistic. It's not only about E, it's also about S and G. And um, second, on the E question, it needs to be the question, how can we transform faster? Um, and I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm accepting the challenge from all our stakeholders and especially my investors. Um, how can you transform even faster as RWE? Um, but simply selling the polluting assets to somebody else and think you have done something good, I think that's, that's a shortcut I don't, I don't accept. Yeah, and it's striking that you see the role there as being a, a decent amount of the role being markets, right? It is, we're not, in a sense, my, my words, but we're not good enough at quantifying ESG credentials. We're using a sledgehammer uh, and and at the moment, you know, it's not good. You know, I think there are many examples of it's not good if Shell sells off its North North Sea assets to to a less socially responsible actor with 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 less of a less of a, a you know a, a commitment to society and less of a long-term view to being good corporate citizens do you so you've, you've said markets have a role and you know maybe larry fink writes another letter and he and he and he clarifies it or mark carney clears that up do, do you think government can help enable that as well i mean is there a you know is there a version of sort of takeover laws where you say you know, certainly there are lots where they say this is anti-competitive or this is foreign ownership. Is there a version of, of takeover law where you say, we do not believe this next investor should be the custodian of such an important asset from an environmental perspective, whether that's a, a coal mine or a, or, a, or, a, or a forest or something like that? And in the one case or the other, maybe a corporate restructuring is helpful. So I would not... Uh be very strict with, with takeover laws. But I mean, what would help us is, of course, if 
the definition of ESG investing and sustainable investing is clearly focused toward supporting transformation and not splitting businesses in good and bad. So if we get a good definition also under the EU taxonomy, and I know the UK is working on standards, but also the US is working on standards. And if that is, is, uh, is a clear support of transformation, that would be helpful because then we have a, a, a valid definition of ESG investing. But I'm actually optimistic. I think the discussion is at the right place and everything which I see is moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It's re- re- reassuring to hear. Um, it's probably a good time to to move to the the final set of topics I'd like to talk about. We do this on every show. I, I ask uh, my guest about some concepts in the energy transition and whether they think they are overrated or underrated. Uh, so you should feel free to answer with a with a one word answer or or to elaborate as you see fit. Um, so so the first concept, Marcus, is the role of markets in enabling society to decarbonize the energy sector. Uh, do you think the role of markets in enabling decarbonization is overrated or underrated? I think it's underrated. Okay, and are there, just one digression on that, are there any markets around the world for electricity where you say that, that that's a good design or I, like, I can do business in that? I know, I know, what I'm, I know the risks I'm taking and the investments I'm making. I think, I mean, if you ask me, currently the the market design in, in terms of in investment stability, the UK market is a good market because you have a clear carbon pricing, you have a capacity market, um, you have a, a clear auction design for uh, for wind and solar, um, and currently they are working on 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 the hydrogen economy. Um, if I look here, for example, in my home country Germany. Um, there's constant discussion about carbon pricing in the different parts of the businesses. Um, some even want to introduce a minimum price within the EU ETS, which is, I mean, economic and environmental nonsense. Um, and um, there is currently no uh, incentive or, or support scheme to ensure security of supply. Mm, yeah. It, and it is, I mean, I, one thing I think that's very strange that's happened in the last six months actually is both. Australia, the, the national electricity market, and ERCOT, the, the Texas market, who were two of the most market-oriented power markets in the world, have both started to have serious debates about security of supply, capacity mechanisms. And my, my guess is that they'll both introduce something pretty soon. Uh, so it could be that Germany is sort of the, one, of the, one of the last holdouts on energy-only markets. But, they do but John, see- uh, John let, let's differentiate the following. I mean, the... Of course, it's very market oriented, but also a capacity market can be very market oriented if you do it like the UK, right? It's a political question whether you want to organize security of supply or you leave a higher risk of failure to to nobody being responsible for that. So I would not say the one is market oriented, the one the other one is not, right? No, we, we need two goods. I mean, the the, con- the conceit of the original power market designs was that you could use one price to deliver both, you know, dispatch and security of supply. And I think we're learning that, uh, if, you know, the economic targeting rule, if you've got two objectives, two, two mechanisms, you know, two tools or two markets are, are the best way to achieve that. So, no, I agree. I, I, I entirely ag- agree with that as, as well, Marcus. Um, Second, second concept, the role of Europe as an example to the rest of the world around decarbonisation. 
We, you know, we often hear that Europe's leading the way, it's dragging everyone along. Do you think Europe's role uh, as an example is overrated or underrated? I think it's too early to call. The, the jury is still out. And I think that depends on whether Europe will be successful in decarbonization and keeping the industry, or if we get it wrong and we lose many of our industrial jobs, um, and then by that also um, the support of the people for the energy transition. So I think the next decade here will be decisive. Entirely agree. Um, and then finally, the potential for the demand side, including prosumers, to play a large role in providing power system flexibility. Do you think the demand side's role is overrated or underrated? It's overrated. Um, I think when you look at that, you you just see the current technologies and the problems. But I think we need a solution for the for for the for the intermittency and the necessary flexibility for the industry, anyhow. And if you have that solution one day, it will be always much more efficient than trying to dispatch I don't know a hundred million electric vehicles across Europe. Yeah, and certainly the recent history suggests there's a you know the appetite for consumers to engage with you know that sort of optimization is incredibly incredibly low, uh, and that you want to build it, build the supply side around the demand side. Um, we will we will see. There are plenty of people trying to make the demand side uh, play a, play a big role. Marcus, thank you very much for your time. Uh, fascinating discussion. I know you're a very busy person, both at home and at work. So really appreciate you taking the time. John, thank you very much. That was John Federson, founder and CEO of Aurora, speaking to Marcus Kreber, CEO of RWE. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.